Welcome to Dialogues with the Past, a High Point University history podcast dedicated to delving into the past and learning from historical experts from around the world. I am Mac Mullins, a history major and enthusiast. Today I am joined by High Point University's Assistant Professor in History, who specializes in British and English Reformation history, Dr. Amanda Allen. It's a pleasure to have you here, Dr. Allen. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Me too. So, in the year 1517, a German monk by the name of Martin Luther nailed a list of 95 grievances against the Catholic Church to the front door of a church in Wittenberg, Germany, starting what we now know as the Protestant Reformation. This Reformation saw the rising of several Protestant reformers who, while all were united in their opposition to the Catholic Church, all held various beliefs on how worship should be practiced. On the island of Great Britain, the ideas and discrepancies of and between Luther and these reformers would reach many academics and clergymen, including the likes of Stephen Gardner and Thomas Cranmer. Today, our story focuses on Gardner and Cranmer, two highly religious and ambitious men who, through an intense rivalry, decide the fate of England and the English church through one question. When one consumed the Eucharist, were they consuming the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ? Now, Dr. Allen, could you start out by informing us what exactly is the Eucharist, and why was this such a hotly contested subject during the Reformation? I am happy to talk about one of my favorite topics for theology history in the Reformation. The Eucharist is the sacrament that represents, depending on the side that you're on, represents the Last Supper for Jesus and his disciples, knowing that he was about to be crucified. The sacrament itself is meant to represent this, if you're from the Protestant side, but in the medieval church, it was largely more than that. It wasn't just about representing the Last Supper and remembering that Jesus was offering himself for everyone, not just his disciples at that dinner. Uh, it was, in fact, Jesus still today in the present, offering himself to all of those who partook. Because of the important nature of Jesus himself offering uh, his body for everyone, the sacrament becomes the key sacrament of the Middle Ages, much more important than baptism or um, the last rites because it was something that happened over and over and over and represented the death and resurrection of Jesus. So because of this, by the end of the Middle Ages, we really see the emphasis for people. They have special festivals, for example. The Corpus Christi Festival becomes one of the most important religious festivals on the calendar other than Christmas and Easter, where people would parade the host through the streets. Uh, so again, we can see that everyone understood the importance of this. So it's not surprising when the Protestants are ch challenging the medieval church, they would center on this as one of the main points of contention of what does is mean when Jesus says, this is my body. But what's really interesting is even as Protestants were challenging the medieval view, they couldn't agree on it themselves. And in fact, most of why most of the Protestants who are breaking from each other, they're breaking over this important sacrament. So just all of that demonstrates that the Eucharist really was the central 
important sacrament for both sides, Catholic or Protestant. And that's why I think it's just fascinating to dive into it uh, much deeper and understand maybe what it means, depending on which side you're looking at. And that is really fascinating. It really is a central part of these people's lives. And it must have been so important for people to be discussing this during the Reformation. So with that, uh, Martin Luther, uh, as we mentioned before, was German. Uh, so how exactly did uh, these teachings from, you know, a German monk and, you know, these discussions between uh, German reformers reach England? And uh, what was the original reaction to the Reformation in the kingdom? We tend to think that the world at this time, the late Middle Ages, the early modern era, people were very isolated from each other. We think of ourselves as the global citizens. But that's not true. Uh, Europe had incredible networks across borders, especially with the advent of the printing press. And the Reformation owes a lot of its success, actually, to the printing press, making more available different writings. And so it's not surprising at all that Luther's works traveled especially in the university network, um, largely run by church members themselves and the church being a united force throughout Europe. So we know that books traveled very, very easily. Additionally, people traveled, especially those who were doing the high-level theology. They would have been traveling to other countries, and as they're traveling, they're taking with them the new ideas. Uh, so, in fact, news traveled much faster than we might think for that age. But what's interesting is that while Luther's works were making strides in other parts of Europe, when they crossed over to England, we don't see it taking as much of a um, big push the way that we see in other areas, largely thanks to the king himself, Henry VIII we can't talk about the English Reformation without mentioning him a few times. He was staunchly conservative, um, traditional, and so he read Luther's works and immediately said they were wrong. And that largely ended the Lutheran movement in England uh, from ever really getting traction. We do know that there were people who liked Luther's ideas, um, but they couldn't voice it loudly because the king would see that as an affront to him by denouncing, you know, Henry's own work, saying they're not okay. Um, so it's kind of weird that we don't really say that the Reformation hit England at the same time as in other places. But like I say, we do know that the ideas were there and were perhaps lingering in some people's minds, including perhaps Thomas Cranmer himself. Now, this leads me to the, my next question. Uh, could you tell me about Thomas Cranmer? Where does he come from, and how does he enter our story? So he is an interesting figure. We don't know too much about his early years other than when he enters into Cambridge. That's where we start to see um, him on the record books. Um, he's kind of interesting in that he doesn't seem to be an expert <laughs> Um, in education or all. He, he takes a while, for example, to get through school. He does eventually, of course, complete um, a degree in theology, but it takes a lot longer than it should. Um, he does get married at one point, 
And um, she passes away, and that's when we think perhaps he decides to go into the church. So he's kind of this almost ambiguous figure at first of what are his motivations, what's his intent. However, when he does leave Cambridge, he does have the opportunity to get into politics. That was quite common that if you were at Oxford or Cambridge, especially getting a higher degree, that you were going to enter into politics because, of course, we don't have separation of church and state at this point. So he slowly enters into court politics, largely defending religion, and it just so happens he's doing so when Henry VIII is not converting to Protestantism by any means, but is in need of a son and starting to contemplate ways that he can perhaps end his marriage with Catherine of Aragon. And in Cramer, he saw someone who was supportive, and as soon as Cramer showed such support, he starts to rise in the ranks. He helps Henry with the annulment, and so in 1533, he's named Archbishop of Canterbury, the highest religious position other than the king himself. So now that we know more about Thomas Cranmer, could you tell me about uh, who we might consider as his rival or arch nemesis, uh, Stephen Gardner? (laughs) So Stephen Gardner is in many ways quite the opposite, I think, of Cranmer, Um, especially when we get to their debate. They're just... They're very different personalities. Uh, Gardner was much more the intellectual, I think, or at least the curious intellectual. He was trained in France for a little bit, had some education there. We know he got exposed to Erasmus at that point, who was a leading humanist and shaped a lot of Gardner's, in fact, criticisms against the medieval church. And then he goes to Cambridge as well, just like Cranmer. But unlike Cranmer, he flew through and got his degrees very quickly, and he specialized in law. Now, he did choose to specialize in both canon and civil law, so church and state law. Um, so a little bit of a different route than Cranmer by, by going the law route. But just like Cranmer, as soon as he left Cambridge, he enters into politics. And because he was very intellectual and had trained in both forms of the law, it's not surprising that he, too, quickly became successful in court, just at the same time that Henry VIII was deciding he needed to find a way to get an annulment. And so Gardner, just like Cramer, offered support and loyalty and was willing to help the king. Um, And so they both have very much a similar rise um, in how they get into politics with Henry VIII. So so, uh, as we've been discussing, they both attended Cambridge University, but we know ultimately they will come to different conclusions about religion. How do you think this occurred? Uh, that's a great question. Um, really, for Cranmer, we see his religious change. It's very slow. It's very gradual, or at least that's how it's, it appears. Cranmer was, in fact, quite smart in realizing who he was working for and that challenging the king could be problematic. So... We think it's gradual and sudden, you know, not sudden because he can't say it is. Um, it's going to take a while before he can actually voice that he's changed his views. But it's not surprising that they would have the availability for different views because Cambridge, just like universities today, encourages free thinking. And it would have been at the universities where Cramer probably first learned about Luther's works, and even while he denounces them, it's in there. 
You know, you can't forget something once you learn it. Um, But as he then starts to work with other people in court, when he starts to actually work with other reformers, um, that's when we really start to see Kramer change. Kramer is very much a man who works on personal relationships. And so once he's around people hearing their ideas, that's, that's really where we start to see a change. Gardner isn't interacting with other reformers. He's staying very um, connected to the different leading Catholics in court. So it's almost kind of like who do they hang out with once they get to court um, that leads them on that trajectory, even though they went to the same initial university. It sounds like uh, we have a case of an academic versus, you know, uh, more like a populist or someone who generates ideas from the public. Absolutely. I think that would be a great way um, to look at it. Kramer really did. He hoped to almost create this interesting network for England and, and making England a global center. You know, so it is kind of he's thinking about the larger um, world, whereas Gardner, you know, was largely focusing on this is what has always been taught and and this is the way that it goes um, and stays firm to sort of that. So you mentioned uh, that both ultimately serve very high positions within court, and both of them uh, receive these through doing acts of service for the king. What other roles did they serve throughout court? Uh, did they attend ceremonies? What exactly did they do? They would have been involved in pretty much everything, or had access to be involved with everything should they want. Now, as Archbishop of Canterbury, Cramer, of course, is leading major events. He's overseeing the various marriages of Henry VIII, uh, but he would have led any of the big um, religious ceremonies in particular. They, as religious men, because Gardner does officially get ordained and becomes Bishop of Winchester, um, They're going to be dealing with what's going on in Parliament. They're part of the advisory council for Henry. Uh, He can pick and choose, but Kramer in particular is always going to be there just by the sheer nature of being Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, We do see Gardner, though, even when he becomes Bishop of Winchester, Henry keeps him much more on the political side. So, in fact, Gardner becomes at one point an ambassador um, with France, and so he's largely working on the continent Um, negotiating for Henry and things that were not religious. So it's kind of this weird, they'll do whatever, they'll be involved with whatever. Um, It's however the king needs them. And again, because there's no separation of church and state, we do see a crossover that, yes, these are technically men of the church, but they might be doing what we would recognize as political work as well. So would these two have any contact or interaction with each other during Henry's reign? Absolutely. They would have been around each other all the time. Um, And that's where we start to see the personal relationship really taking off. They just did not like each other. I don't think that there's ever really a time that we can see that they liked each other. Um, Or at least I haven't been able to find that. Pretty much when we start to see them interacting with each other, it's... In opposition. Gardner was very ambitious and wanted to have higher positions in court. So in 1539, for example, when Henry um, got rid of one of his top-ranking politicians, Gardner was hoping to take over the title, um, Lord Chancellor or Vice Gerent. 
And it's the top-ranking political role that rivals that of Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, and Henry did not refill the, ro- uh, fill the role with anybody after this. And so Gardner gets sort of mad about this. He sees that this was his chance. Um, and so that's really, I would say, 1539 when we start to see conflict between the two arise. But it's somewhat based on Gardner's just selfish sort of desire and ambition um, that he's starting to see he's never going to be at the same level as this Cranmer person, um, and he wants that. So from that point forward, we do see the two vying, and in many ways I think Gardner was trying to get Cranmer ousted, perhaps for himself to be then named Archbishop of Canterbury. And when Cranmer starts to realize that, you know, Cranmer's not going to stand for it either. So basically, for the remainder of Henry's reign from 1539 onward to 1547, we know that there were major conflicts where Gardner was truly trying to oust Cranmer, and it was really not until Henry, the king, steps in that Cranmer was saved. So ultimately, under Henry's reign, uh, the English church does separate from the Catholic church. What role did Cranmer and Gardner play in this separation? They were key. Henry wanted all angles (laughs) covered uh, in providing justification of why his marriage to Catherine of Aragon was null and void. We so common say that he divorced Catherine. It's not accurate. It's an official annulment that happens um, through major manipulation of the sources. But that's where Cranmer and Gardner stepped in. Cramer was key in finding biblical justification of why Henry and Catherine were never married in the first place. And then Gardner was key to finding the political justification. So we know that both actively helped Henry with um, the annulment and supported him with the act of supremacy that declared him and his heirs head of the Church of England um, and really secured sort of the trajectory for Henry. And we know that throughout the rest of Henry's reign with all the other subsequent marriages and maybe divorces, maybe annulments, they're also right there overseeing all of that. So they're actually both helping with the separation of the church from Rome, um, yet it has nothing to do really at this point with theology. It's all political Um, But we might see that Cramer, in the long run, had a different motivation. He was hoping that this would result in further reformation and truly bringing the Protestants to England, whereas Gardner just wanted to solidify the jurisdiction of his king. So in 1547, Henry does die. Uh, He leaves the throne to his very young son, Edward VI. So what exactly changes... Uh, between the relationship of Cranmer and Gardner, and how do they interact with each other afterwards? Oh, it takes a dramatic turn in 1547. So Edward VI was actually raised by Protestant relatives. Royal children were hardly ever raised you know, by their actual parents. Um, so Edward was raised by relatives on his mother's side, the Seymour family. Known Protestants, Henry didn't care. As long as Edward was being raised to be a good king and learning proper politics, Henry honestly did not care. So Edward, by the age of nine, was a staunch Protestant. And a nine-year-old trained to be king in the 1500s 
is not like a nine-year-old the way that we think of now. Edward knew his mind. He knew and understood his faith by age of nine very, very strongly. So as soon as he becomes king, Cramer remains Archbishop of Canterbury, thus leading the church. And he's pretty much given full reign now to implement the Protestant Reformation under the approval of the king and the king's regency council. Additionally, with Edward's regency council, Archbishop of Canterbury was the top role until we get a Lord Protector. Um, Cramer is also Edward's godfather. Right? So there's a lot of connections that meant Cramer could immediately just go. He knew that he had the authority now. Um, Gardner refuses to accept any of it from the get-go. Um, again, in 1547, there was already some legislation put into effect um, indicating the trajectory. And Gardner continued to say, no, it's not valid. You haven't overturned laws of Henry VIII. I'm standing by what's on the books from the previous reign. You haven't changed anything. And so we see Gardner just take up this sort of staunch defender of the faith, so to speak, from the get-go. And immediately we see Cranmer and the council responding back. At this point, they've been waiting. They don't want further distraction and delay. So within no time, the laws were changed, and the Protestant Reformation was enforced, and Cranmer, uh, Gardner excuse me, remained firm that he wasn't going to change anything, which therefore meant he was arrested. And Cranmer was the guy in charge of the trial. So immediately, right, we have a complete power dynamic between the two that just fuels the fire. Gardner's not going to step down, especially, right? You know, now he's even more willing um, to stand up and fight. So we definitely see at this point the relationship change and just take on an extra force that wasn't there before. So we now see that Gardner, a bishop, has been arrested by the Archbishop of Canterbury. What exactly happens to Gardner while he's in jail? So he's undergoing a series of, I, I mean, it's not even safe to say sort of trials and, and questioning. He does sometimes meet with the actual um, commissioners. But in general, he's given documents saying, just sign this. You know, tell us that you agree with these points that we're putting forward. Sign it. Gardner refuses to sign. He continues to refuse largely on the request that he just wants to see the king. And if he can see the king and explain his view, everything will be fine. Uh, but that's largely a delay tactic, I think. Um, he knows he's never going to be able to convince the king in council. But he's trying to sort of delay and cause further impediment and trip up Cranmer um, through doing such. So eventually it comes to sort of a bigger um, issue. The king at this point's angry himself um, that Gardner's refusing to issue these orders that are coming from the king. You know, ultimately everything's coming from the king, even if it's by Cranmer. Um, so we get to then the Lambeth Commission, which was the official trial that oversaw Gardner's arrest on religious grounds, although, again, there's still that political um, undertone. Cranmer is meeting with Gardner. They do have some exchanges verbally. But what's really interesting is what's happening while Gardner is in his cell. He was put under orders not to have paper and pen 
his supporters brought him paper and pen. And so he's writing the entire time. And he's writing explication. Much longer title. It's easier to just say explication. Um, And it's basically a book in which he is denouncing Cramer's view on the Eucharist um, that Cramer had wrote in an earlier book called Defense. But there's this interesting political attack that he also puts into the book. When Cramer reads this, um, the day before or a few days before um, he's next set to meet with Gardner, it just solidifies that nothing's going to happen positively during the Lambeth Commission. Um, Cramer is extremely mad that this book has been written, smuggled out of the cell, published abroad, and brought back to England. So what would have been the reaction of the uh, the people reading this book. Uh, it, clearly, there's disunity within the English church. Uh, a bishop has been imprisoned and is now releasing a book to the general public to read. So who would have been reading this, and how would the reaction have been? This book would not have been available to many people. Um, we are still dealing with a society that largely is illiterate. Um, and so most of these books, especially high theology, were for a very limited audience. So the people who would have been reading them would have been other high-ranking church officials, but also advisors in court, um, other politicians. So it was really meant to be an attack at the top level against one of the top officials. It didn't matter so much how the public responded because it was the top who had the control of who's in positions of power. Um, So, yeah, it was largely a very specific um, audience, and Gardner knows that. He only really had concern about one person reading it, Cranmer, who we know absolutely did. And so what do you believe uh, was going through Cranmer's head as he received uh, this book? That's a great question. I think if we look at his response, answer, we can see that he was just absolutely angry, but also I think there's almost this level of confusion. He, he can't believe it even came to this. Um, and so he just seems completely befuddled sometimes when he's responding um, to Gardner's book that he can't believe this guy hasn't changed his views in the first place and is now putting in these personal attacks, these political attacks on something about just a sacrament. Like, why are you including all of this other information when we're just trying to talk about what is the nature of Jesus in a sacrament? So I think Kramer was astounded, um, obviously angry, and personally also felt just personally attacked, um, as we see with some of the ways that he responds to Gardner. So you mentioned that the sacrament is discussed within this these books. Uh, what uh, what tactics were used to attack the other uh, the opponent in the terms of discussing the Eucharist? So the first book in the whole series of this is Defense, in which Cranmer is laying out the Eucharistic theology that he is trying to now move forward in England. Every great theologian has to sort of defend. Uh, their viewpoint in writing. Um, He's following sort of the tradition of of all the others. So in defense, it's pretty much, here's what we believe. Here's the biblical justification. Here's the justification from the earlier church fathers. Here how other reformers are justifying it. 
So when Gardner responds, he is also going through and saying, here's how you misread the Bible. Here's how you misread church fathers. Here here is how you also misread reformers, which is a fascinating one that he, Gardner sometimes is defending reformers in order to attack Cranmer. So he's line by line trying to challenge Cranmer by challenging Cranmer's theological view. But every time he's doing that, he's saying, here's how you, the actor or the author, he actually never names Cranmer, uh, which is itself just this major, incredible rhetorical tool that he refuses to name Cranmer. And he calls them, we would read it today as actor, but it's really meant to be author, but yet there's an interesting play on how those words now we see differently. Um, And he's saying, you are wrong. You are wrong. And it's not just you are wrong. It's I don't understand how someone with your learning could be so wrong. So we really see just absolutely insults riddled throughout the entire um, book, all couched in line by line, you know, reinterpreting the Bible than how Cranmer had. But really what's going on behind the scenes is much more a Cranmer, you are wrong, and I can't believe that you are wrong. So you mentioned that there are insults within these writings. What, what insults did they entail? Uh, I've heard that there are quite a few, you know, quite astounding insults that you wouldn't expect from clergymen nowadays. That's right. We have such an understanding of, um, you know, being respectful and being polite of different people's views. That is not the case at all in 16th century rhetoric, whether it's religious or political. Um, but just a few. Um, one of my favorites is actually from Grant. Cranmer's response to Gardner, um, and he says, quote, This bladder is so puffed up with wind that it is a marvel it brasteth not. But be patient a while, good reader, and suffer until the blast of wind be past, and thou shalt see a great calm, the bladder broken, and nothing in it but all vanity. I mean, he's calling Gardner a bladder that's full of hot air, you know, but through the truth that Cranmer is going to put forward, it's going to be a calming, you know, dismissal of the wind as opposed to a blast that could harm um, everyone. Um, another example from Cranmer, you speak so fondly, unlearnedly, and ignorantly. So again, this is very, you know, harsh with the way that they're putting it forward. Some of the insults that Gardner puts forward, um, quote, which matter I declare thus to show that as this actor dissenteth from truth in other, so he dissenteth from that he uttereth for truth himself, and walkers in a maze impugning the very truth in this sacrament. So basically saying Cramer doesn't even know what he says at all. Um, so it's just it's quite interesting, the words that they're putting forward. There are definitely times when Gardner himself uses terms like ignorant and unlearned, um, Another good one from Gardner. To the common people's ears in which it might sound evil, they not being able to make answer thereunto, whereby they might be snarled and entangled with vain fancies against that truth, which before without curiosity of questions, they truly and constantly believed. So there's always this language, too, of the other person is trying to take the common person and give them so many different ideas 
lofty sounding ideas as to confuse them and ultimately lead them to hell because they're not going to receive the proper sacrament view. So you did mention uh, in the very beginning that the Eucharist was very central to uh, an average Christian's life back during this, uh, these ages. And so what, how exactly did the Eucharist come to emerge as the main topic of discussion within these books? Um, again, with defense, it truly seems to start that Cramer was just trying to explain what the new Eucharistic theology was going to be and assert that it was going to be a Reformed view, moving more towards a spiritual presence that Jesus is not there in actual flesh and blood, but is there through divine spirit. And so for the worthy partaker, you, you get the benefit because you believe. Um, and so, again, defense is sort of just setting up, here's what England's going to believe, so that when you see the new liturgies, you understand why we're, we're changing some aspects. Um, and then for Gardner, it was important to defend against that and say, no, we're going to maintain the medieval view of transubstantiation and the sanctity of the sacrament as it has been. It's so crucial. It's so important. So we do see that there's a strong defense of the actual theology. But by the time we're really getting to Gardner, and then especially Cramer's view, I'm not sure that the Eucharistic theology itself is central. But what's interesting is when Cramer does respond with his his final book in the debate, he does provide a much more thorough description of the Eucharist. Um, Gardner, being a lawyer, had called out, he had found a lot of holes in an argument Kramer responds to that and answers to it, largely to explain why Gardner is wrong, but what he's doing in turn is creating a much more sound theology. And that's very important because it means that we then have something very set and something that can be very permanent should we also have someone in the future use this view for the English church. So it is still a central element, even though... We could say, honestly, the personal and political sides are also equally central. So it does sound like the Eucharist was used as a vessel for political debates between two rather uh, religious and ambitious men. Absolutely. This became the way that they could finally um, really lash out at each other. And since it's such an important topic, right, for Gardner to say the Archbishop of Canterbury has gotten it wrong, that is hitting... Kramer truly as sort of the most important element of religion. So to denounce him at that level would have been major. Um, so, so right. But again, we can speak to or question, is that religious though? Or is there this other motivation? So unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess in Gardner's case, uh, the young Edward VI did die at the age of 15. And he was temporarily replaced by Lady Jane Grey for a few weeks, and then uh, after that by Queen Mary, one of Henry VIII's daughters, who was a Catholic. Uh, so how did this impact the careers of the two? Uh, complete opposite role reversals. Um, it's, and it's very quickly that we actually see this happen. As soon as Mary becomes queen, Gardner is released from prison, and he is elevated to a very high position in her court to help her with the process of her reconciliation with Rome and taking England back to how it had been 
even before Henry had broken away from the church. So if they're letting Gardner out of prison, it shouldn't be surprising to then note that Kramer was very soon thereafter also arrested and imprisoned. Um, Gardner immediately begins overseeing important religious festivals um, and in events. He's very crucial in some of Mary's events that would have been originally under the jurisdiction of the Archbishop of Canterbury. So finally, Gardner almost gets the availability of acting like the Archbishop of Canterbury, even though he doesn't have the title. um, Cranmer immediately undergoes two different trials. The first is political, where he's declared a traitor for having supported Jane Grey over Mary. And then after that, he goes through his religious trial for heresy, and Gardner is overseeing it. So it's just like the original Lambeth Commission, where Cranmer had been overseeing Gardner's religious trial. Um, There are some key differences. Um, There's a lot of bureaucracy in play with this round because of the fact that Cramer was the Archbishop of Canterbury. It takes a while to have that title officially denounced and deprived. Um, As we refer to it, we call it deprivation of title. Um, And so it's kind of weird that he's kind of going through a trial, but also waiting in limbo. Once he, though, has his Archbishop of Canterbury title deprived and revoked, we really see the trial come to its fullest. He is uh, declared a heretic. He does recant back and forth several times. Um, we do know that he was uh, shown great force during some of the trials. Um, so he does recant at times. Uh, but ultimately, it does lead to his being burned in 1556. So Gardner oversaw most of this. Um, Gardner does, in fact, die a few months before Kramer is actually officially executed, so he did not see that end, but he knew it was coming. So we have a complete role reversal with Gardner being the one who, we would say perhaps, saw the ultimate victory, um, having been elevated um, and, and seeing his foe in the position he had once been in. However, it does seem that Cranmer does eventually end up on top. Whose argument wins out and why? I would absolutely say that Cranmer is the one who wins out, so to speak. Mary herself does not last long and did not provide an heir. The Tudors have issues of secession the entire time. Uh, Their family is in power. So when she passes away, it moves on to her half-sister, Elizabeth I., as soon as Elizabeth I becomes queen, she makes it clear that there's going to be a return to Protestantism, and she was already draft, drafting legislation that actually would go back to much of what Cramer had instituted during Edward VI's reign. It was there, it was ready, people had been used to it, so it's not surprising that Elizabeth was using much of Cramer's work to then set up her religious settlement. And she lives a long time. And it's in her reign that we really see Protestantism solidified in England. Um, It's not exactly the form it was in Edward's reign, but the Eucharistic theology largely is Cranmer's Eucharistic theology. It was adapted, it was secured, and is still embedded in Anglicanism um, and uh, in different um, denominations that have broken off of Anglicanism today. So here you have a great debate between two great theologians 
ultimately deciding the fate of England's church and ultimately what they chose to practice. Quite fascinating. And thank you very much, Dr. Amanda Allen. And thank you for tuning into Dialogues with the Past, a High Point University history podcast. Please tune in every two weeks for a new episode with a new expert.